Welcome to the BU Find Your Greatness podcast, a holistic personal development podcast exploring the journey of growth through real life stories. Today we're joined by Elspeth Vanderhol, a fashion photographer and illustrator that's found creativity to be the perfect outlet for her mental health. We discuss dealing with bereavement, mental health diagnosis from anxiety to borderline personality disorder, as well as different types of therapies and their efficacy. We also go into health and fitness and how they impact mental health. I really enjoyed this episode and hope you will too. So uh, welcome to the BU podcast. We're Thank joined you. today by the wonderful Elspeth Vanderhall. Have I said that correctly? You have indeed. Perfect. So uh, she's a fashion photographer, entrepreneur, mental health advocate. I mean, is that all fair the to things. say? I don't, yeah, I'm kind of a jack of all trades, but master of none. No, that's not the right one. I, think, I would say you're a master of a fair few. Thank you. Um, so would you like to tell us a bit of, well, I've told them what you do, but I think from your own words, what is it you do? Um, I guess first and foremost, I'd probably say I was a fashion photographer because that's kind yeah. of where I began about 14 years ago now. Then I've got an illustration business that I run alongside it that came out of the blue a few years ago when I just kind of wanted another hobby. And then I was like, oh, great. I make all my hobbies into businesses. Um, do a bit of fitness. But then, yeah, I've started in the last probably six years talking a lot more about mental health because it means a lot to me to kind of be that person that I needed when I was younger. So so yeah. how would you define that person you needed when you were young? Um, I think because, I mean, well, I'm 30 now. Um, and when I think I first started suffering from mental health stuff, I was probably younger than I think. But I guess around 15 is when I can kind of think back. And if I'd have had somebody like me that had turned up and sort of said, oh, actually, yeah, you can live a life fairly normally and like, fulfilled, even though you have all of this stuff. Whereas at the time, no one really spoke about it. So for me, it's really important to give a voice and a face to something that hopefully like younger people or even anyone really can just look at and go, oh, okay, I'm not on my own. So, yeah, yeah. So you said 15, 16 was when you started noticing. I think from... in hindsight, yeah, I don't think I noticed it then, but now I can look back, I can be like, oh, my behaviours were probably mental health based and there was probably depression kicking in. So yeah. what kind of things were you experiencing at the time then? Um, I've got really good memory, like painfully good memory. It actually irritates me. Mm. Um, but in year 11 of school, I was getting quite badly bullied and I was really struggling to go in and I was probably going in at one point, maybe one day a week. But I've got no, I've got real blackouts in my memory then. And I think back and I'd sort of broken down and cried at various teachers and I was sort of doing things to escape. Like I had an older boyfriend and I'd run away to his and live with him for a while. And I think... Now I look back, I'm like, that's not really normal mental health behavior. Like there was some mental illness probably fueling that. So, mm. yeah. So it kind of, hindsight's a wonderful thing, huh? Yeah, I guess that <laughs> when it, hindsight's 2020, as I say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so speaking of 2020, I want to just veer off very quickly because mm -hmm. uh, it's a new decade. Yeah. Um, and I think, I don't, I don't know about you, but I've been quite reflective a, a little bit. Um, so before we continue, I just want to just check, like, what do you feel was kind of your biggest accomplishment for the last decade and what do you want to kind of achieve in this new decade? 
Um, if we're going to be profound, purely staying alive last yeah. decade. Like, I think that was my main focus. Yeah. Um, and learning to kind of live comfortably with who I am. So my goals, I think, at the start of the decade probably started out much more career focused and what can I do with photography and stuff like that. And then as things went along and I learned more about myself, yeah, it became much more, okay, let's learn how to like who I am. Let's learn how to be comfortable in who I am. And then the rest will follow. And then I think from here moving forward, my goals are starting to shift again because now that I am quite comfortable with myself and I've got that stability, I can start properly looking back into my career and building that aspect back up again. So, yeah. So how did you, you say you're comfortable with yourself now? Okay, so what were you not comfortable with before and what was the shift that kind of um, built up that com- you being able to be comfortable with yourself? Kind of? um, I think when I was younger, especially in my early 20s, I thought I knew myself. And I think a lot of people really, when you're in your late teens, early 20s, you're like, no, I know exactly who I am. Like, this is the person I want to be. And then um, when I was 23, well, my dad had had cancer on and off for seven years and we thought he was in remission and then when I was 22 he went he got diagnosed again with bowel cancer and he died when I was 23 and I was in my third year of university and I think when you go through the loss of a parent or the loss of anyone really but anyone that's significant to you it blows everything out of the water and suddenly your perspective is wide open and you're like hang on a minute all the things that I thought I knew about myself all the things that I thought I cared about I now have to relearn. Mm. So I think that was a huge thing for me is that finally taking that step back to go, actually, I'll never know enough about myself. So now is the time to sit and go, okay, just keep learning. Strip it all back. Stop being so sure of yourself because you're actually quite uncomfortable inside. So stop having to pretend that you're fine. It's actually a lot nicer to be vulnerable because people just let you be. So, yeah. Mm. So just it was more of a, a shift in mindset kind of. Yeah, yeah, definitely perspective. I think perspective was the biggest thing because it was little things like before my dad died, you'd care so much. And obviously after a while, like when the grief starts to pass, you start caring about the little things again. But in those moments, every now and again, I check back in with myself and I sort of go, right, when dad was dying, would you have cared about that? No, because your main focus in that moment was to have a good connection with your loved ones and to care for people around you and give them your time and listen and make sure you show that love to people. And I think before that, because I didn't really know real, and I knew struggle in a sense, but not to the level that I felt it when my dad was dying. So I think it just opened my eyes up to the reality of world, the world and not in like a harsh way, mm. just to look at it differently. And it really helped to suddenly think, okay, you've looked at the world just this one way for so long. There's actually so many other ways of looking at this. So yeah, perspective. So I can only imagine, well, sorry for your loss firstly, but I can Thank only imagine you. that was a very tough time. Like how did you, what was the mourning process for you? Like how did you manage to cope? Um, I think it was really difficult because I was only talking to somebody about this the other day. I didn't really have time to grieve initially when it happened because um long story short just after my father died I became estranged from my immediate family and I was in my third year of uni so I was putting on a degree show um I was doing photography and I was putting on a degree show in Nottingham 
and a degree show in London. I was having to write a 12,000 word dissertation. I had so much going on. And then due to the estrangement, I then moved back to Nottingham, had my flat for a couple of months still, and then ended up um, nearly homeless and had to then live with friends, families to finish the rest of my degree off. So my main focus, it was almost like more of a primary instinct of, okay, I just need shelter. I need support. I need food. So those became the initial, I didn't have that space to grieve. So I think then because over the last seven years or so, I've been able to build that stability up. Now I'm kind of making that room to grieve properly. So I think, yeah, in the early days, it was a real strange one because I remember a lot of people, when you go through the death of somebody, a lot of people think that you need um, people instantly right there and then. But I remember my friend's dad said to me, um, you'll get two types of people. One will be the people who are there and they'll be there through anything. And the other people who will cross the road because they don't know what to say to you. And you don't ever know which person is going to fall into that category. And I actually lost a lot of friends around that time. Um, And it was, yeah, it was really difficult to kind of know who I was because of that. Everything changed. My home, my family, like my support network, my friends. So I had to rebuild it all from that point. So you say you'd lost friends. Um, how did you then kind of, you say, rebuild your support network? How did you go about that? If you're estranged from your family, as you said, or like what was the process with that then? Um, I think in the early days, I hit a real bad period of depression and I hid. And I was really fortunate that I had some incredible friends that stuck by my side and I stayed with their families and they looked after me. And um, I've been with my boyfriend since I was 21. So he was there through everything and him and his family have been amazing as well. So having those key people, I'd gone from a whole world of friends and big groups of friends to suddenly maybe like two or three that really mattered. And I think it, made me realize that you don't need a lot of people. You just need a couple of people who really care. And that gave me that bounce pad after sort of going through the initial period of depression where I was hiding away to then go, okay, I need to start getting myself out there again. I need to start doing small things where I'm just small socializing, like nothing huge. I used to go out and I'd party all the time. And then it became, okay, join a yoga class okay, just go for a coffee with someone. And I think that kind of, it humbles you when you get your life ripped away from you and then you just start small again. So, so um, I wanted to touch quickly on mental health aspects then, because you've mentioned depression mm-hmm. a couple of times. Um, is that something you've always battled with? or? Um, I was. It's a, it's a really weird one because I actually... I always thought of myself as just a really happy person and I'm, I've always been really confident and I've always been bouncy and able to make friends and put myself into anything. Um, and then, like I said, when I look back, that depression was obviously under the surface somewhere, but I was never really taught how to use my emotions or how to deal with anything. So any negative emotions were always just shoved to one side. And I was like, we'll just leave that there. We'll ignore it. And then suddenly when I was 21 and I'd moved to my third uni, so the first one I dropped out, Second one, I did foundation art and design, and then I ended up at Nottingham. And in my first year, I remember um, I had gone into a seminar and I suddenly found myself, I was unable to hear and I was 
I couldn't really speak and I was panicking and I was sort of thinking, okay, everyone can see me. Okay, maybe everyone can't see you. Is everyone ignoring you? And then I was just, and it's like my whole senses just shut down. And I remember I went to the doctors and she was like, oh, so yeah, you've got anxiety. And I remember telling a couple of people then, they were like, no, you don't. You're not the type of person to have anxiety. And because at that time it would have been, yeah, when I was 21, so it would have been 2011, something like that, 2010. It wasn't really talked about. So it was kind of like, this thing is but everyone always made out that mental health was people in like an asylum somewhere so you kind of think this doesn't make sense to me I don't know what's going on and then over the years I'll touch on it more but over the years I've since been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder complex post-traumatic stress disorder and then more recently um OCD on a kind of perfectionist scale so that's a lot of diagnoses yeah I've got the whole alphabet so do do you feel having these so obviously you're going through life you're experiencing emotions you may not necessarily be aware of what you're experiencing you're just experiencing things do you feel having these diagnoses helps you identify your behavior or what you're feeling why you're feeling and manage it better or so much i think there's a real stigma around getting a diagnosis because people think oh we just you get a label and then you've got an excuse to not do anything and it's, I know a lot of people, especially quite a lot of medical professionals who are reluctant to give diagnoses because they don't want to put people in a box. But for me, to be able to look at something and go, oh, I'm not crazy. That's why I'm doing that. Okay, now how can I tackle that? How can I then break this down to then, like I said, relearn everything again? So for me, it's it first and foremost became focus on just getting through everyday life and identifying and learning why my behaviors are a certain way then it became more about a recovery and now it's much more about prevention because I've learned what I started doing then I learned how to recover from that and now I can learn how to prevent that from happening um and I've always said it's um diagnoses for me are very much an explanation for my behavior they're not an excuse so I still take responsibility for however I am or whether I'm behaving negatively or however extreme I can get, I will sit there and I will assess it and think, okay, how could I have changed this? How could I have changed that? So yeah, for me, it's been life-changing to know why my brain is doing certain things. So, okay, let me remember these letters, C, P, T, S, D, right? <laughs> yep. Okay, so I'm quite, I'm aware of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So the complex aspect mm-hmm. Well, just define what this is. So in layman's terms, complex post-traumatic stress disorder is um, more of an amalgamation of numerous traumas over the years that equate to the same kind of aftermath as how you think of someone with PTSD. So for example, I get um, quite a lot of trauma nightmares. So I will get nightmares where I'll uh, remember my dad dying again and it will be distorted or I'll have nightmares about being homeless again or I'll have them about people in my past, so friends that I'd fallen out with or my immediate family. And um, even just there are smaller things as well in everyday life that will set me off. So sounds and smells that remind me of people from my past who have maybe treated me negatively and caused trauma towards me in an emotional sense takes me straight back to that childlike state where I think, oh my God, I'm unsafe here again. So I think a lot of people, when it comes to PTSD, they think uh, they think of sort of somebody in a car accident or somebody who was in the military and they've gone through a bomb blast. And it's 
the outcome is similar in terms of things triggering you, but it's a very different type of diagnosis in terms of what, how it's been caused. So, so how do you manage, manage that aspect? Um, I've literally just finished um, a therapy called Dynamic Interpersonal Therapy, where we did 18 sessions altogether. And it was just me one-on-one with a therapist where we looked back at my relationships and friendships and how I was with my family when I was younger and compared it to now to learn why I respond negatively or why I panic in certain situations. So for example, I really struggle with discussing money and I get really panicky that I'm going to end up with nothing because obviously after my dad died, suddenly everything was gone. I had no money. I had no home. So even though we're in a stable environment now, I was still convinced myself, your house could be taken away from you at any moment. You could lose everything. You could lose your friends. So I have to learn to reel myself in and be like, right, these are different scenarios. It may feel the same, but that doesn't make it the same. And also what was really interesting that came from it is that I never realized that I was really ashamed of my inner child. And that sounds really like hippy dippy and whatever else, but I've learned to not kind of shove her to one side. Cause I used to be, I'd get into quite a, like a childlike state where I'd sit there and I'd be like, Oh, I'm a rubbish adult and I can't function and I'm useless with money and I can't, I don't know what I'm doing. And then now I can sit there and go, you don't have to feel like a perfect functioning adult all the time. Sometimes you just need to comfort yourself. And because I don't have a parent there to comfort me or anyone who I feel I can 100% trust in that type of parental role, I've had to learn to comfort myself that way. So that was a a big thing for me with the trauma is just learning to talk to myself a bit, kind of. Mm. So what do you tell your inner child? Um, I think I kind of just... I think of how I would be as a mum or I think of my inner child as a separate entity to me rather than because before I would judge that part of me because I thought it was me. And now I think back and I kind of thank her because she got me here. And I think that's incredible for a child, a young teen, early 20s, all the stuff that terrified me and getting bullied and losing my dad and all these things that it's that person I think back to who I was and she was so scared but didn't give up so I think to I kind of try and give myself a bit more credit and just sort of be like actually well done like we've got this far so yeah I think that that is the most underrated thing people I I think often don't appreciate how far they've come um and the loose sight of the now yeah um without realizing the process and the progress even if it's one step every year you're still moving forwards um i think even i struggle with that even sometimes and you just have to just pause and be like actually this did this and um see where you are now one of the things i think that's helped me the most is just it's very similar to what you were saying about just taking that one step everybody always sort of goes oh i've taken one step forward however many back I've learned to think about it more in terms of, um, as cliche as it sounds, of mountains. Mm. So like when you feel like you've gone backwards, it's actually just that you overcame that last mountain and you're just at the foot of the next one to climb. So then it makes, because I'm a very visual person, it makes me think, okay, actually, no, you haven't gone backwards. You've just done that bit and now you're doing this bit. 
Yeah. And so then it doesn't, because before when I think I was going backwards, it would almost be like I took away from myself that recognition of success and achievement from before by thinking any future failures would remove the past successes. Mm. So now it's kind of good to be able no, to. That's an excellent analogy, actually. It's good. It helps um, if you're a visual person yeah. as well. It helps to think, okay, no, it's fun. I'll drop go backwards. It's yeah. Good. I think like makes me think of um, certain memes as well. Like, I don't know if you've <laughs> seen this one. Uh, there's a guy on top digging for gold. And there's a guy below that's got to the gold. So the guy on uh, top, he's turned back and he was actually this close to the gold. Oh, so I like, love that. Yeah. It's like, you so need to keep you, going. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess we talked a bit about your uh, CPTSD. Yeah, complex PTSD. That's an easier way of saying it. Otherwise, yeah. there's too many words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but obviously, you've also mentioned um, borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. which is something I'm um, also... I've I've had a friend who had a diagnosis, but never really discussed it. So, mm-hmm. like, what exactly is that? Okay, so... Borderline's a really weird one because it's got so much stigma attached to it. But also I think there's there's like nine main traits of it, which I can't reel off off the top of my head. However, when you're diagnosed, you're supposed to tick off at, at least five or more in order to fit the criteria, meaning there can be something like 250 something combinations of different traits. So everybody who has borderline personality disorder could be totally opposite from the other person. So you could have five of one and five of the other and these people only share one of the same trait so it's quite an odd diagnosis in that sense where you can't really compare one to another it's not like anxiety where there seems to be that flowing line that people seem to understand the best way to describe it is it's an emotional intensity disorder so and i mean the word disorder is strange to me because it's literally just my personality Mm. so unless somebody Somebody somewhere along the line has gone, this is a wrong personality. And it's like, well, no, it's just mine. I've just had to learn to get used to it in the same way that a child would get used to learning their own emotions. I've just had to do it a bit later. So in a more scientific sense, um, your prefrontal cortex, where your logic is based, and your amygdala at the back, which is your the old part of your brain where the fight and flight mode comes from, my um because i wasn't really taught how to process my emotions as a child my amygdala has become much stronger than my prefrontal cortex so i struggle to bring logic into intense situations which fires the fight and flight mode or freeze and you get that real intense emotions in that panicky moment so i have had to learn that what my brain is telling me isn't always correct Sometimes I'm flying off the handle zero to a hundred and I don't really do it these days. Cause like I said, I'm much more able to prevent how I feel. Um, but it's taken a long time to learn to introduce logic back into things, mm. but then not go too far and be too logical. So I have to stay in that middle ground, which I think when I did therapy, it was referred to as the wise mind. So you managed to make the two bits meet. And, um, the best way I can describe it as well is so if you imagine you put a baby in a room, right, from the day it's born, this baby is fed and watered. That makes it sound like a plant, but you know what I yeah. mean? Um, but you never speak to this child. So then the child develops a language of its own. And then say you suddenly go, right, you're 10 now. You can come out of this room. 
but you have to speak perfect English. And then you, people get cross with you because you can't speak perfect English, but you've developed your own language to be able to communicate. It's exactly the same with me with emotions. Nobody taught me how to use them. So I had to make up my own emotional language. So then what I had to do when I was, I think, when did I, so I was diagnosed with it when I was 25, I think, either 24, 25. And when I was 26, I had to do a 20 week emotion management course where I unlearned pretty much everything I knew about emotions to relearn it. And that's hard when you've got that many years under your belt of doing things the same way for a long time. So yeah, it's intense. <laughs> so um, there's something you touched on there, which is basically in your formative years, you were kind of uh, taught how to use emotions. Mm -hmm. So um, as you've kind of... Uh, experienced or learn more about be uh borderline um have you come across kind of how it is people are taught emotions as children because for me I, I guess to me it just seems so normal if that makes sense that yeah. you wouldn't be skipped as a so what is it that wasn't taught to you and what it is that is taught to other kids okay so I came from a very stoic background it was very stiff upper lip we don't discuss problems we don't talk about anything outside the family unit we just well to be fair we didn't really talk about much inside it it was you just kept going it was just a case of like keep on keeping on and I think that taught me that the correct way to do things was that you don't really acknowledge your negative feelings. And when you have a difficult time, you just ignore it and you keep going. And then that's that. And it goes away, but it doesn't go away. It builds up and up and up. And then it explodes one day, which is what I found out when I was 21. Um, in terms of how I feel, I guess it's difficult to understand how others learn it because I guess for me, I've always been an emotional person. So I was more susceptible to exploding with all of this because I didn't wasn't able to teach myself and then what there must be some kids out there who have taught themselves correctly mm. without intense guidance but so for example me and a friend were talking yesterday and she's got two young children and she was talking about how when they do something wrong she'll sit with them and go when you did this it made me feel like this and this is why we're apologizing and also what I've realized is other friends who've got kids you'll sit and even I'll do it with them and I'll say anger is a normal response you're allowed to be angry just because you're a child you don't have to be perfect this is how we then express anger and this is how we then recover from that mm. so I think because I was taught to shove everything down anything that was actually a normal response like sadness and anger and stress became I became really ashamed of it so then when you're then ashamed of an emotion you don't have that movement to sit and feel it and be angry and then learn to undo it. So, yeah, I think it's definitely going to affect how I will parent my future children because I'm going to make sure that I teach them emotions. Yeah. So. So is that therefore then affected your relationships with people around you? Yeah, 100%. Um, I think the friendships that I had when I was younger were very much based around we didn't really talk about anything emotionally. It was, we have fun, we party, we just do stupid things. And 
if anything ever gets a bit too serious, then we just go and do something more stupid and then we ignore all of the feelings. And I think that's why I really struggled when my dad was dying because suddenly I needed people around me who could give me that emotional support. And I hadn't, I didn't really have anybody around me who had that capacity in them. And it wasn't their fault. We'd all come from really similar backgrounds where you just get on with stuff. And if you express your emotions, you're called an attention seeker or you're being selfish or you're being difficult. And I think one of the things that I've identified with my therapist is that um, I, because I always felt like I had to almost pay my way in emotions in order to hear something back, I was never able to just express myself and that's it. So even now I struggle to express myself without then having to be like, oh, so how are you? Let me help you with your problems too. So, yeah. So with borderline, um, I've lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> so it's not so much something you um, get over. It's more something it's, you, you kind of develop the skills to manage. It's, it's For me, it's like learning a language. Yeah. Like once you've learned that, you can, yeah, forget a bit occasionally and you might struggle with it if you haven't spoken it for a while. But if you practice it and keep working at it, you eventually pick it up and you become fluent in it. So one thing I found really distressing is when I was first diagnosed with it, obviously you're going to Google it. You're going to go, what the hell is this? Please someone tell me something good. Everything online was negative. Everything was terrifying. It was all people with borderline personality disorder are evil and they're bad and they're going to be narcissistic and manipulate you and do all these things. And I was just like, God. And even I had a lot of doctors say to me, it's incurable. You're never going to live a good life. And I was, because I'm stubborn, I was like, yes, I am. Mm. So I think that's why I talk a lot more about it. But yeah, for me, it isn't that it's curable or incurable. It's just that you have to learn more about yourself because I've just had to learn the things that most people learn when they were a kid. But if you said to a child, oh, you can't manage your emotions, you're never going to. That You wouldn't do that. No. So why would people, or why would I say that to myself now when I can still learn? I find that um, fascinating that you said doctors were saying you'll never live a normal life. Um, have you found kind of in your experiences with healthcare or kind of trying to get support, have you found kind of doctors have been very kind of dismissive of yeah um it's really hit and miss some doctors have been incredible and they are the reason why i'm still here because they've actually sat me down and listened to me and i mean i say doctors the therapists and the clinicians that i have, have had have been amazing but what i've found is a strange reluctance on the behalf of a lot of doctors they don't want to diagnose you with borderline personality disorder because it's too difficult to treat. And suddenly on the NHS, then you're a number in a system that they can't get rid of quickly because you take years to recover. So it took a long time for me to push for that diagnosis and to get help. And when I first was diagnosed, I was living in the Midlands and I ended up having, they told me I was having really bad suicidal ideations at the time. And I went to my doctor, I just drove there one day and I was like, I'm I'm going to do something bad. Like, I can't live like this. This is horrible. And I, I can't do this anymore. And he just said, oh, it'll be a year long wait until you can see a psychotherapist. And I was like, so that's it then. Great. 
And he was just like, oh, your mum should be helping you. And I was like, I'm estranged from my family. I'm on my own. Like that's the part of the reason for how I feel now is because of my past. I can't go and ask for help because from what's caused the trauma. So for me, then I had to use, so my, my boyfriend's parents live in London and I ended up using their address and having to commute two and a half hours to be able to get help because of the whole postcode lottery. So so basically the system was a little bit better set up with the waiting times for... Not necessarily the waiting times, but for the fact that I felt I was being listened to more and they had more kind of stop gaps in place. So for example, I was referred to a more specialist unit, which was the complex depression and anxiety service, rather than just through a GP. And um, they put me on a waiting list, which I think it ended up being just under a year. But there was a thing called the recovery college where I could go and do essentially one or two days or a course that would last six weeks. It was once a week where you do like a mindfulness course or you do a coping with stress course or just something, anything to kind of put that filler in to feel like you were still making progress. And for me, that was also really important to be around other people who were also trying and also in a similar scenario, because like I said, I'd come from a background where people didn't discuss things. So then I'm thrown at the deep end. And I'm like, oh my God, there's so many people here and we're all kind of alike. So yeah, for me, yeah, it was a postcode lottery and having to kind of be clever with how I found help. But I know there's a lot of people who don't have the stubbornness, I guess, that I do where I refused to let the NHS say no to me. I just kept being like, you need to find me help. You need to find me help. I can't afford to go private. You have to find me help. And I think that's the problem that, and how a lot of people get lost in the system because they just give up. And that's why then people think they can't live a normal life because they get left. So it's, it's really sad. So once you were able to get help on the NHS, like, um, see therapists, or mm-hmm. I'm guessing, was it more than just therapy or what kind of help were you able to get? Well, to start with, I actually saw a therapist through my uni at Nottingham Trent when I was first diagnosed with anxiety. And I had, um, I think I had two talking therapists there who were six weeks at a time because you couldn't access more than that because that's all they could provide. Then when I'd moved back to the Midlands after I would finish uni and I was living with my friend's family, I then accessed more therapy and had another, I think, three separate talking therapists there. Um, and then, yeah, when I then finally got referred to London, or oh, referred myself to London that's when I did um, a thing called steps which was the 20 weeks of uh, emotion management and the recovery college and then eventually a few years later I did something called act which is um, acceptance and commitment therapy and then I've just finished like I said dynamic interpersonal therapy so it's um it's been a long road of a lot of different things but what I found really interesting is that not so people will sort of go, right, this therapy is best for this. But they also don't consider that each therapy kind of feeds onto another. So when you do more specialist therapies, I wouldn't have been able to do acceptance and commitment therapy when I was doing when I was at the start of my therapy journey, because that is kind of like an add-on where once you've dealt with the once you've identified everything in talking therapy, then dealt with how to unlearn and relearn your emotions that's when then you can start to learn how to live with things you don't have answers to. So for me, I describe therapy as almost kind of like qualifications for life, where 
because I know a lot of people get scared of then finishing a set of therapy because they're like, oh my God, what am I going to do without my therapist? But when you start to look at it as actually, I've been taught this thing. This is like my GCSE in emotions. And then this is my A-level in how to accept things. You kind of learn that actually therapy is always there to dip in and out of. It's not a case of suddenly you're left and that's it for the rest of your life. You can learn extra skills on top. So it builds like a whole toolbox of life skills. So did you always have positive experiences with therapists? No. (laughs) No. uh, I'd say a good 80% really positive and incredible. One therapist in particular, I can't even remember her name now. But I, she was just one of the talking therapists I'd had quite early on. And there's only so much talking you can do about the same stuff. Like when you start to identify what's wrong with you and what you've been through or what you need to talk about, that's great because you're like, this is the first time I've talked about this. When you get to the fourth person in and you're saying the same things, you're like, this isn't helping. This is actually just making me dwell on stuff. And I remember I'd gone to see this woman and for some reason it had changed to being at the hospital rather than at the GP surgery this session and um it was a hospital where my the last time I'd been there before that my dad had been in there having surgery and so it brought back all these memories and I was having that leads back to the trauma thing suddenly you're in an environment where you feel that trauma again and this therapist she was quite an older woman and um she I don't so I don't know if her views maybe were a bit outdated but she started to tell me that I was angry with my dad and tell me that I was feeling certain ways and I just completely lost it and left and I was just like do you know what I, I can't do this and I remember I phoned my doctor when I was in the car park and sobbed down the phone and was just like I can't do this I don't and in, in that moment because you trust that medical mm. professional you think they know everything and then eventually you realize oh they're just people who do this job sometimes they're not going to be right for you And the best way I've ever explained it in the past is it's like a relationship. If you are, you'll go through various relationships to learn things about yourself and not all of them are going to be right for you. And then you'll find your right one. And therapists are kind of the same. So you have to go through them. Well, I don't go through relationships, but you know (laughs) what I mean? You have to kind of learn more about yourself to then identify who you connect with. And I think it's really healthy to just sort of sit there and go, actually, this one doesn't work for me, but that doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't mean they're a bad therapist. It's just we're not a good fit. So, Okay, so as a person that's never had therapy, um, I find it interesting. You said basically essentially the therapist was telling you what do you feel. Mm -hmm. Is that a normal thing for therapy? No. (laughs) Um, A therapist is, for me, my understanding is there's supposed to be a guide to identify with you how you feel and then how you can move forward. A therapist is not supposed to give their own opinions on stuff in terms of a personal aspect. So you, every other therapy I've done, I've never had someone go, this is how you feel, this is how you feel. They'll go, do you think maybe you're feeling this and we can work on maybe this aspect of it and it will be a much more comfortable environment rather than an attacking thing which yeah, is very that, that odd sounds, that sounds um distressing yeah especially like you said you're in a vulnerable situation mm. you, you feel you're supposed to be able to trust this person and but at least you've had positive experiences oh yeah thing has been negative especially considering it's on the nhs so yeah. what are the um actually before i continue with therapy i want to talk about medication because mm-hmm. i guess that may be a component of kind of 
managing mental health is that something you're on now have you been on medication before or um currently all i'm on is i take the lowest dose of zopoclone which is a sleeping tablet but i only take it as and when needed and basically the reason for that is not that i can't sleep it's that i like i said i get these trauma nightmares so i know that if i've had a really intense emotional day or if i'm exhausted I'm much more heightened to then having these nightmares, which then make me feel like I haven't slept and they can be really horrible. And so, yeah, I just take that as and when needed, but that's all I'm currently on. I wouldn't hesitate to go back on antidepressants though, if I needed to. But um, in the past, I, well, when I was first diagnosed with anxiety in 2011, I went on citalopram, which is your real basic antidepressant. And, um, I think that was then increased, started off on 10 milligrams, went up to 20, went up to 40. And it was good to start with, but then I, it was a combination of things. Although the depression was being dealt with, obviously I was undiagnosed with various other conditions. So they only thought I had anxiety and depression and borderline personality disorder can't be treated with medication. It can be helped with the anxiety and depression side, but you're still being emotional and you're still having these outbursts and you still don't have that emotional language yet. You can't just take a tablet and be taught an emotional language, but it can make you feel, give you that bounce pad to be able to learn, if that makes sense. So I'm less depressed, I'm less anxious, so then I can help myself more. But the issue was there is that I was still grieving. I was struggling with obviously access to the therapy and everything else. I didn't have home, all these things were going on. And so I hid in bed for ages and I wasn't exercising, I wasn't doing anything, I wasn't active, I wasn't going out. And so the weight piled on and I piled on probably about four stone and I became so miserable. And one of the side effects of these tablets was weight gain. However, I don't know if it was the tablets or it was because I just wasn't moving and I was eating more. So it, it swings around about. But I went back to the doctors and I said to them, look, I don't know if this is causing weight gain, but it's kind of counteracting the, the antidepressant side of it because now I'm just feeling really horrible and miserable in myself. And they switched me to um, venlafaxine, which I think I went up to 150 milligrams of that. And with that, the difference is, um, so don't quote me on this because I'm not a scientist or a doctor, so disclaimer. <laughs> um, but my understanding is that citalopram is an SSRI, which um, it deals with building extra co uh, connections naturally in your brain to spread more serotonin around because you're lacking in serotonin, which is obviously the happy hormone. Again, please don't quote me on this. Someone is going to come along and explain yeah. this a lot better than me. Um, venlafaxine was an SNRI, which uh, increased the, connect the natural connections to move more serotonin around naturally. Um, and it also blocked negative receptors. So it added that extra element. It was like the next step of antidepressant to hopefully help me. That was really good for me. It was difficult to wean on and off. It took a lot. Like you got a lot of nausea. You got a lot of brain zaps. And I had to work out ways around dealing with the fact it also caused me migraines. And I remember I went to my doctor and they said, um, and I said, look, I'm getting these awful migraines. What am I supposed to do? And they just said, well, you can either change antidepressant again or you can learn to deal with the migraines. And I was thinking... I can't deal with that nausea and stuff right now of weaning back on something else and the unknowing and not knowing whether I was going to pile my weight on and all this stuff. So I then had to sort of, I was taking vitamin B complex to try and deal with my migraines. And then I was taking ginger root tablets to try and deal with the antidepressant. And then I got switched because what I didn't realize that they didn't tell me was when you take a quick release 
antidepressant, it releases in your stomach. So it can make you feel really sick. If you get a prolonged release tablet, which is then more expensive on the NHS, which is why you get put on the quick release start with, if you take the prolonged release, it's um, it releases in your intestines. So you don't get that sickness. So yeah, I was having to deal with the sickness from the tablets and you get this weird kind of brain, like I said, brain zaps. You feel almost like you're underwater when you're going on and off them. So that was, yeah, I was probably on those altogether for about, I'd say five years. And then I never intended on coming off them because for me, it was, I just described them as an antibiotic for your brain. There's nothing to be ashamed of with taking them. You wouldn't, um, so for example, if you're diabetic, you wouldn't just go, I'm not going to take my insulin because I'm going to ignore this. You just wouldn't do it. So why would you ignore that with your brain? So it was kind of a natural progression of then when I was going through therapy, because of the emotional intensity starting here and then the antidepressants started to even it out, but then it's like they would come down too far. So then I'd have no emotional feelings. So I'd need to even that back. So I'd drop a dose of antidepressants to then be able to feel again, but then I'd feel too intense again. And then eventually it would even out again with the therapy. And then gradually it just so happened that it was just the right time to come off. And I started to replace what I needed with fitness. Wow. Um, in terms of medication, I think that's kind of the, it does sound a bit, um, a bit like, you're playing a game almost like I take this medication, but because of this medication, I need this medication because of that, I need that. And yeah. It kind of piles up. So do you feel, do you feel you could have gone through the process without the medication and just the therapies or do you feel you needed the medication as well? For me, because I didn't have access to the right therapy and I didn't have the correct diagnoses at the time, I don't really know. But I know that in those times I needed that medication. Like there was no way I would have been able to climb out of the hole I was in if I didn't have that bounce pad. That because the medication treated the initial everyday misery and sadness and anxiety and everything in order to get me to a place where I was then able to fully immerse myself in therapy. And I think had I entered therapy without trying to get a bit of stability, like basic stability in the form of medication, I don't think it would have worked as much. So I'm a real advocate for both. I think if medication works for you, that's great. If it doesn't, it also doesn't matter. It's about finding, like you said, it's like playing a game. You have to find what fits, what medication fits with what therapy and what works for you and whether you have side effects and trying different tablets. And sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes you might find the right thing straight away. Yeah, it's a waiting game and a fun Game of chess. <laughs> <laughs> so you just mentioned turning to fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, as kind of uh, the finale, so to say, of your um, the the end result of you being on the medication and gaining weight, etc. So, what kind of when you say fitness is such a general term, like yeah, it's a bit, isn't it? <laughs> so what aspects of fitness or health did you? Um, So right now, my kind of main go-tos are yoga, weightlifting and boxing. But it all started with when I was living with my friend's family, probably about a year after my dad had died. And like I said, I was in that real depressive state, not getting out of bed, not doing anything. I was on benefits and unemployed and everything just seemed a bit bleak. 
And then I heard about yoga. As cliche as it sounds, I was like, I am clinging on to anything that will help me right now. So obviously I'd got the medication in place. I was waiting for therapy, starting to build that stable environment, but I needed to move again. And I used to play a lot of hockey and um, sort of quite a bit of tennis and stuff when I was younger. Um, And I found this yoga class that was not that far from where I was living. And um, I remember I emailed the woman who ran it just like hi I'm really anxious and depressed can I please come along I don't know what I'm doing and she emailed back and you know you can feel how good someone is even just through typed words and I was like okay this could be good I'll go along and it was in a memorial hall in the middle of nowhere on a Monday morning and I think because the average demographic was probably 60 70 plus and then me and I was like this is great the first time I'm not in any competitive sport and I'm just with people that I'm not going to compare myself to and I can just be and people aren't going to judge me and yeah I just found a whole new level to it because in yoga you learn how to breathe properly and that sounds so stupid but I don't think I ever breathed properly before and that helped with the anxiety and then having something to do every morning on a Monday when you're unemployed and you're on benefits it's miserable because you feel guilty for doing anything fun because you're like, okay, I'm on benefits. So I should be looking for a job, but then also I still need to have fun. But then if people see me doing something fun, they're going to be like, why aren't you looking for a job? So to be able to just have this one hour every Monday morning to set me up for the week and get me out of bed and get me talking to people, but not too much pressure. Cause you didn't really have to talk to that many people. That's how it all kind of began. So how do you feel? Besides your breathing kind of yoga benefits, you? Um, it gave me a community to be a part of. And like I said, that wasn't competitive. It wasn't anything to do with my family. It wasn't anything to do with my old friends. It wasn't even anything to do with my current, rela- current relationship. My actual, we're, yeah. we're engaged. It's not like he's a current, he's forever. Um, and it gave me something that was just for me. And it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't about work. It wasn't about trying to do photography. It wasn't about all these things that I'd kind of struggled with. It was just something that forced me to slow down. And like I said, my pers- my perspective had been blown out completely at that time. So it, and I didn't really sit in the present enough. I was constantly thinking of the past or struggling to know what was going to happen in the future. So yeah, it gave me that clarity to sort of go, right, just stop and be and that's all you need to do in this moment. And then you can transfer that to life. So besides yoga, you also mentioned boxing so, and weightlifting. So you th- mm-hmm. I'm guessing or assuming through um, your fitness journey, you've lost weight that you would have put on through the medication. Um, does that kind of physical change change how you feel internally as well? Uh, What was really interesting is that when I first gained weight, because I was always a naturally quite skinny person and I was probably quite underweight before. And I guess that would have been a sign when I was younger that I was miserable because that was the whole other end of the spectrum is that I just was always off doing something. I was never really looking after myself properly. Um, With the weight thing, obviously, I think in the generation that we grew up in, when I was at school, even when I was at uni still, it was, you've got to be skinny. Like skinny's got to be the thing that makes you valuable and worth anything. And it's so weird that I look back now and people base their self-worth on being skinny. Mm. And so gaining all this weight, it was 
a blessing in disguise because then suddenly turning to fitness and turning to yoga, yoga then led me to weightlifting because I wanted to get better at yoga because I realized if I was stronger, I'd be able to do more in yoga. And then I realized yoga really helps weightlifting because you're more flexible and you're able to use your joints properly without damaging yourself. And um, suddenly any desire to base my self-worth on being skinny became, oh my God, how strong can I get? Oh my God, my body can do this. Oh my God, I'm so grateful for the fact that I am able to do stuff. And then anything, any dieting that I'd done years ago suddenly went out the window. And I was like, my God, if I learn to eat properly and I fuel myself correctly, I can run faster. I can do the splits. I can, I don't know, lift heavier. I can, And then suddenly you feel that real adrenaline and in, in the best way. And then you've got all this outlet to put all of that emotional baggage into and you have time for you. And one of the things I found the most important and I still do to this day is I'm confident and I'm an extrovert, but I'm also really introverted. So it's a real weird double-edged sword mm. where I'll be working on my own at home a lot and I really want to talk to someone, but I won't want to actually also have to go out and do anything and see anyone because I don't have that energy in me. But if I go to the gym, I can be around people, but I don't have to talk to anyone. So it kind of pulls me out of being in that four walls where I'm boxed in and feeling on my own, getting paranoid and anxious and puts me back into the real, real world where I sort of go, oh yeah, everyone else is just existing. They don't care about me. This is fine. And I can crack on with what I'm doing whilst also still feel like I'm part of a community without the pressure. So yeah, there's a lot of elements that fitness have has given to me that I never saw coming. And uh, yeah, and it's not about weight loss. <laughs> Great. So you've talked about eating properly. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean, eating properly? For me, I don't diet. I don't, I say that's a really, that's a really obscure thing to say. I do diet in the sense that I have a good diet, yeah. but I don't do any fad dieting. I don't, I don't restrict anything. I don't label anything as bad food. Everything to me, if it makes you feel good and it tastes good and it's amazing food, then you just, I'm such a foodie. Like I, part of the reason why I then started going to the gym was I was thinking, ah, oh, I can eat even more and I can try all of these mm. foods. Um, and I, not that you have to balance that out, but like I said, it made me realize I could fuel myself and test it in different ways and see if I ate this, am I going to run for longer? Um, but for me, yeah, a, my diet became much more everything in moderation. Um, obviously you can eat to excess occasionally. We all, we've all sat there with several bars of chocolate and, you know, yeah. cried into a tub of ice cream. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just enjoy myself with food. I don't make myself feel bad about it. If I want something, I want something. If I've overindulged at Christmas, doesn't matter. It's life. You have to just learn to roll with it and enjoy who you are and be grateful for the fact that you're just alive sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, speaking of kind of eating right and feeling better as a result, um, have you ever heard of uh, Jordan Peterson? No. Okay. I thought you would have heard of him and you're less likely to have heard of his daughter. But um, he is kind of like this motivational speaker. Let's call him that. It's not what he is exactly, but it's uh, easy understanding. But his daughter, um, growing up, had 
many problems with anxiety, depression, um, and then kind of also um, some autoimmune issues as well. Mm-hmm. And um, like she was on the antidepressants from the age of 12, all this kind of thing. When she got to uni, it got worse because she was eating bad. Um, and she ended up in a spiral. But uh, she reached a point where she was like, I need to do something about this. So what she ended up doing is slowly eliminating things from her diet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the obvious one is gluten. That's kind of... Uh, um, a lot of people struggle with gluten when they realize it or not. And then over time, she ended up just eating basically meat and vegetables. And then it's like, oh, my um, depression's gone. My anxiety's gone. Just from eliminating foods. And she told her dad, look, just, you need to try this because dad also had depression. And uh, there's an interview with them on Canadian TV. Because um, that's where they're from. Um, before, so they went on it talking about antidepressants and yeah. And then after, like a few years later, oh, we've come off antidepressants and this is how we just eat meat and veg. Um, and it's just changed our mental health. Um, but then what happened with the daughter is she had a child. And so what happens, what can happen with pregnancy is your microbiome can change. So kind of the bacteria in your stomach. So then she stopped responding as well to the meat and veg mm-hmm. diet. And she went to literally, or she eats meat now. Wow. And but it's the only way she can so it's she doesn't medicate. So mm. that that is her medic medic form of medication in a way that she just eats meat and she lives fine. She doesn't struggle with her anxiety, depression. Um so I always find that fascinating, kind of like we I don't think we understand just how important food actually is. Yeah, because it's really interesting actually because I don't know why I didn't say this before. It's just, but I one of the things I did change about my diet was I looked into gut health, and I realized how much your gut is linked to your mental health. And also, um, like I said, because I originally started looking at it because of performance based things, thinking, yeah, I can run faster, I can be fitter, I can be healthier. I started introducing. I looked at instead of taking things out of my diet, I looked at what I could put into it. And then the good things start to then make me feel good and I felt better from them. So I'd be less inclined to reach for, I say good things, the the good gut health foods made me less inclined to go and stuff myself full of a load of, I don't know, gluten full stuff. Um, and it's really interesting you said about gluten free as well, because my other half, he um, developed a gluten intolerance when he was in his mid twenties. And so it meant that our whole household became a gluten-free household so I still eat it occasionally because I mean gluten-free is just expensive (laughs) so but at home sort of we switch things like to gluten-free pasta or we eat sourdough which although it's got gluten in it's got a lesser sort of content of gluten so it's better for you and then other foods such as I will drink turmeric tea and eat more avocado which yes I'm a cliche millennial (laughs) um or even just drinking more water that That was a huge game changer to wake up and drink a pint of water rather than a coffee. Who knew that that would be a huge difference? So, yeah, so there were all these tiny changes. And then when I start to realize how the small changes made so much more difference than one big change, that's when my outlook and everything kind of shifted. So when you were looking into kind of um, gut health, did Mm -hmm. you find... um, your cravings, things you used to crave, did you stop craving once your kind of gut health improved? 
Yeah, it's really weird. Even now, I'm like, never thought I'd become this person. But even now, I'll sort of try and look for a more nutritious and fulfilling thing to eat when when I'm grabbing lunch rather than just going in, I don't know, getting a McDonald's or something. I'll be like, hmm, is there anything? I, can I find like a local bakery that does a bit more sort of healthy and a bit more feeling? Because you can, once you know how nutritious food feels, and hey, it's almost like you can feel it feeding your soul, then suddenly you really notice the difference when you're packing in all of this fast food and stuff. And don't get me wrong, I still eat a lot of pizza and drink far too much Prosecco. But it's, yeah, it's, it definitely opened my eyes up to the importance of a good diet and being much more mindful of how you shop and eat. So do you feel... Um what you eat also affects how you sleep. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even just down to the fact of obviously I drink less coffee now because I'm drinking more water and drinking, that water's the strangest thing because it wakes you up in the morning, but it also really helps you sleep. And I'm yeah. like, I don't really get this, but we'll just go with this. Um, yeah, and I think I find I sleep a lot better when I'm full, I can feel full, but when I feel full on good food, it's like, like I said, it feels like it's feeding your soul. So then, you sleep better. It's almost like your brain is functioning better and everything's a bit clearer. And it's almost like the world is a bit brighter rather than feeling sluggish and feeling miserable and feeling almost like, you know, you get that feeling where your skin feels greasy because of how mm. much bad food. Yeah. When you feel that level of health, being healthier, everything just improves. So like I think there's a big connection with sleep and mental health huge connection so mm. do you find um are you so in general like i guess you've mentioned this, these tablets but you find like you're sleeping better now and do you find that it helps kind of your mindset and being refreshed and yeah i think it's a combination of things i think obviously i don't use the sleep medication all the time that's just in real necessary situations because it's quite an addictive drug so you have to be quite careful of when you use it. So I don't ever get prescribed enough for, to be able to take one every night. Um, so yeah, focusing on yeah, good diet, what I've learned in therapy, how I can manage my emotions. Um, for me, sleep is really important, not just to get a good night's sleep and how to get a good night's sleep, but also if I get enough sleep, then I'm also able to function better, which then will improve my sleep the next night. So it's kind of like a knock-on effect. Suddenly, if I've had a bad night's sleep, I can ruin my sleep for the next few days so yeah it's um sleep is definitely something that people don't often look into properly and when when I was doing therapy I did um steps which was the 20 weeks of emotion management and what you did was we broke everything down and you assessed everything from how you ate to how you slept and all these things and they'd call it sleep hygiene and it sounds really weird when you say sleep hygiene to someone because they're kind of thinking, okay, do you mean you just change your bedding? No. But it's everything down to, is your phone in the room when you're asleep? Are you going to bed at the right time? Are you watching TV? Are you drinking coffee past a certain time? All these things. And then if you get them all right and get them all to al align with each other, then you're like, aha, we found sleep and it's good. Oh, great. Um, I think we've probably uh, ran a bit longer than yeah. we expected. <laughs> Sorry. So we're a little short on time, but um, 
maybe we can do a part two at some point where we can talk about more it. of the the business side of things. Yeah. Um, but in closing, I'd like to see if you if there's any kind of advice you have for um, anyone maybe with um, borderline personality disorder or um, who's experienced loss, kind of how to what's helped you and what can possibly help them? Um, I think for me, I had to learn that I was not, um, oh, this is hard. Okay. So I had to learn that I was not represented by my diagnoses. They did not make me who I was. I am me. That is the one thing no one can take from you is that you are you. Nobody else can be you. And I think as long as you don't give up and you're always at least trying, like you're going to, like I said, try medication, try therapy, try this, and you're going to find you go down avenues where it's rubbish for you. I mean, I've tried some ridiculous sports and I'm terrible at some of them and I've just had to knock them on the head. So in terms of what I'd give advice for, I'd say try everything and anything. And as soon as something makes you miserable or it doesn't work for you, put it down forget about it, move on to the next thing and just keep going until you found like what we discussed earlier, that almost game where you've suddenly found all the correct pieces and you've put them together because it's not always going to be the first things you try. You have to take time, try and build it, build your own kind of normal because no one is normal. So you have to find your own and yeah, it's all, it's all the case of trying. One last thing, cause it's just occurred to me. Um, I guess, having been through your experiences, mm -hmm. would you say you are in a happy place now? Yeah, I think what I learned was that um, happiness isn't having fun. For a long time, I thought that was what it was. Happiness for me is contentment. And that doesn't always mean that you're always happy in the way people think of as happiness. Like, I don't have to be laughing and joking and doing some amazing things to be content and happy. For me, it's stability. And I'm in a really interesting phase of my life now where I'm just about learning to accept that things are stable. And I don't just mean my mental health. I mean, like, my relationship is incredible. That my, my home environment, the fact that I've got my dogs, like, and I've built such an incredible community of friends and family around me that it's, yeah, it's kind of leading me to a life that I didn't think possible. So I think for me, yeah, happiness is kind of as cliche as it sounds. It's what you make of it, not what you think it should be. You kind of find it by accident as long as you try. <laughs> I think that's a great uh, definition. And so we'll leave it at that. So thank you so much, Elspeth, for taking time out of the afternoon to talk with us and share your story. Um, I'm sure many people find uh, you very inspiring and kind of be able to find kind of uh, advice within the things you've shared today and hopefully benefit from your story. So thank you very much. And uh, like I said, maybe we can do part two. Uh, yes, definitely. Time. <laughs> um, so yeah. We'll thank leave you. <laughs> thank, seriously. Thank you so much. This it's been so nice to just, yeah, it's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>